we've completely forgotten. So, um, yeah. you know, it, they're a handful. Yeah. And you you're know, home all day long. Yeah. And I'm home all day. Oh my God. Yeah. I'm here all the time and they still are and they have each other and they're still nuts. So um, they're fun. It's really fun. But and how much video you get from oh my God, so much video. watching them grow up. And sorry for saying sorry media presents the purr podcast the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips tricks and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team if you're dying to know more about cats keep on listening here are your hosts dr susan little famous cat vet and textbook author and dr yola kirpenstein talented surgeon and social media geek hello this is dr yola kirpenstein and and this is dr susan little and this is the Fair Podcast, and we are really excited because this is the second week that we're going to talk about behavior in and kittens, kittens and, cats. and cats. And we talked about kittens last week, and now we're going to focus on cats, foster cats, shelter cats, uh, behavior with cats. And I'm really excited because this is a topic that I think a lot of people uh, struggle with, veterinarians yeah. and owners alike. So uh, very happy to have our guests. Yes, yeah, so we have Dr. Michael Delgado back with us. And I just wanna start by um, delving a bit into how you got to do what you're doing because you're a PhD kind of doctor, not a DVM kind of doctor, but you are at a vet school at UC Davis. So. So tell us, what, what did that path look like for you? We're always interested in how people ended up where they are. Okay, yeah. Um, my path was definitely very convoluted. I, was, I never grew up thinking like I was going to be a vet or work with animals. I actually dropped out of college because I wanted to move to California and play in rock bands. So that's what Ooh. I did. <laughs> and, um, what rock bands did you play in? Um, um, well, I'm from the East Coast, um, so I grew up in Maine. And okay. then... Um, I played bass guitar in a bunch of punk rock bands that you never would have heard of, but it was a lot of fun. And I spent a lot of time in the 90s and early aughts doing that. Um, but when one of my cats died, um, I was super bummed. I mean, I still had another kitty who was great, but um, I really missed the cat who had died was kind of one of those heart kitties, you know, super special. And a friend of mine had started volunteering at an animal shelter and he was like, oh, you should come volunteer at the shelter with me and, you know, meet more cats. And so so I was like, okay, that sounds cool. And when I got there, I found out they had this special ward of behavior cats and you had to have all this extra training to work with them. And I was immediately intrigued. Um, so I you know, basically you know, stalked all the staff in the behavior department and said, I wanna work with these cats, so what do I have to do? And once I'd been volunteering long enough, they give you extra training to do behavior modification and work with the cats who are really just having a difficult time adjusting to the shelter environment, or they had a history of behavior issues that they'd come into the shelter with. And you know, most of them were very shy, um, under-socialized kittens, or you know, cats who had a lot of pent-up energy and were kind of taking it out on people. And that was really how I got started, was volunteering at the shelter in the behavior department. And, then I volunteered so much that when there was a job opening, they offered it to me. <laughs> and so that was really how I got started in behavior. So it's kind of backwards. I did not have an education in behavior at that time. I got a lot of training and mentorship. Um, and I was primarily doing things like assessing the cat's behavior um, for safety and adoptability and kind of like compatibility in homes. And we did have a free behavior hotline. So people would call with, you know, questions about their cat's behavior. We offered public classes. 
and we did some counseling when people were adopting those cats with behavior issues. And I worked at the um, San Francisco SPCA for about eight years. And at that point decided that one, I wanted to offer home consultations for people having behavior problems in their, in, with their cats because we were doing phone calls and it was um, great. I mean, you can definitely do a lot on the phone, um, but it's, it's great to also see the environment. So that was, that was one thing is like, okay, it's time to kind of take this to a different place. And I also recognized that my education was, um, or my lack of education was a hindrance for me in being able to do the things I wanted to do, which is really have a really deep understanding of behavior and what motivates it and, you know, how to change it. And so I went back to school um, and finished my BA and then eventually um, got a PhD. That was a long process. Um, <laughs> It took me seven years to do my PhD. So um, I was spending a lot of it chasing wild squirrels around in Berkeley, um, which is where I got my PhD. And I'm um, learning a lot about behavior in general and cognition. And then when it was time to finish my PhD, <clears throat> I needed something else to do. And I had met Tony Buffington, um, Dr. Tony Buffington, who's um, an amazing person and great vet. And we had met at a cat conference. I had actually been helping to organize a cat behavior conference and we invited him to speak. And we just, you know, became friendly and um, we're like, we should write a paper together. And so we um, collaborated on a paper with two other authors about food puzzles and cats. And then it turned into, hmm, you're finishing your PhD. How can we get funding for you to come work at Davis? He was in the process of retiring from Ohio State and moving back to the Davis area. And so um, I'd always dreamed of being at Davis. So wrote a grant, got funding, ended up at Davis. And um, so now I'm, I'm a researcher at the vet school. I'm not a vet, um, but I'm working with a lot of clinicians and around a lot of clinicians. Yeah. There's not a lot of, um, there's a few of us, but it's, it's definitely very clinician heavy. Um, it's very different from a kind of traditional academic environment. So even though there's a lot of research going on, it is um, much more clinical trial oriented where I was from much more of a like, kind of experimental methods and, um, you know, not necessarily looking at treatment. So, you know, I had to learn a lot about kind of the different approaches and, um, but also I had a lot of things to bring to the table and a lot of staff experience. So it's been, um, it's been great um, to work with veterinarians and people that I've, you know, obviously admired for a long time and um, being able to learn more about, you know, kind of the different, how the different backgrounds can work together, how research and medicine work together and that, you know, it's not, I, I was a little worried that I was going to be totally out of place. And, you know, I know where the lines are drawn um, for lots of reasons, but, um, but it's great to collaborate and just get different perspectives and also learn more about the medical side of things. Yeah. I have a question. Do you still play the bass? <laughs> well, right now, actually, um, I just started taking drum lessons. Oh, cool. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. good. That's good. Yeah. So I'm trying to learn how to play drums. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. The other question I had, uh, you, you did a lot of consulting, I guess. What is the number one behavior question that you get? Um, it kind of goes in waves, but probably for the last few years, I'd say cats fighting. It's oh. all cats fighting um, and litter box. Um, so those are the top three, cats fighting, litter box, and cats waking their owners up in the middle of the night. <laughs> so let's start with cats fighting. So what is your uh, answer? Uh, um, yeah, it's, um, my answer is to do what I just did and adopt litter mates. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, it's really, um, the, the main issue is, is 
people trying to introduce adult cats, um, often not correctly, um, but sometimes you can do everything right and the cats still do not want to be roommates. And, and I think one way I explain it to, pe to people is if, if someone picked a roommate for you, Exactly. And you had no say in the matter. How would you feel? Like, first of all, you'd be completely resentful. Like, this person has to live with me now. Like, I don't even know you and I hate you. Mm -hmm. And and then you might not like them, even if they had a person, you know, even if you were open to the idea of having a roommate, the fact that you had no say in the matter is, is a problem. It sounds like a reality TV show, doesn't it? It does. It really does. Um, and it's hard. I mean, I've had clients who were like a couple who moved in together and they each had their own cat and now they're moving in together. This is supposed to be the highlight of their relationship. And now they have two cats who hate each other and one person sleeping on the couch with one cat and one person sleeping in the bed with the other cat. And you know, it's a mess. Um, so it can be very challenging um, with these tough cases. Um, you know, there are times where I'm like, are you open to rehoming? And some people just are not. And I'm like, well, are you open to living with two cats living separately in your apartment for the, you know, indefinitely? Mm. Um, and people are also really hesitant to talk to their veterinarian about yeah. medication for these situations. Like they want to see it as a last resort. And honestly, I wish they would intervene a, a lot sooner on that end because the longer these behaviors go on, the harder it is to rewind that tape. Yeah. Oh, you can probably hear my dog. Can you hear my dogs wrestling in the background? Speaking of behavior, they're actually very friendly. So. The growling you hear is their evening playtime. And <laughs> yeah. It's so different with dogs. Um, yes. So yeah, it's, it, it can be a very, yeah, a very challenging situation. They're, they're the hardest cases to resolve. I would yes. give, me a, give me a litter box case any day, but, um, you know, the cats fighting can be really difficult and it's stressful. The cats are not happy and often the people are not happy. And so it, it, it's tough and people get very, I mean, if, if you've adopted a kitty, um, you know, it takes about five minutes to fall in love. So, you know, it's like people get really heartbroken. Even when I worked at the shelter, I mean, when people would have to return a cat for this reason or other reasons, I mean, people were, were often like heartbroken, crying. And it's, it's very, and you have to be really compassionate towards people. A lot of shelter workers get very angry when someone returns an adopted animal. Um, but Pretty soon I learned like, oh, this was like the right decision. And I'm gonna go ban the dogs from the bed. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Talk amongst yourselves. I'll okay, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Dr. Susan. <laughs> I think that, that that's really interesting and, and it's, it's obviously really frustrating to, to deal with these. So the advice that you give to owners that have two cats that are fighting, mm -hmm. if, it, it, if it's a case of a person bringing in a new cat, it's easy. You can say, probably you should not have done that and maybe you should bring <laughs> the cat back. But in the case of the, the couple that gets together and has two mm -hmm. cats that are beating the, the hell out of each other, um, yeah. so either rehoming or uh, internal rehoming. So. Well I mean, you know, so there's always counter conditioning and desensitization. So these are processes we use to change cats' emotional response to one another, doing gradual exposure. Um, it's just like phobia treatments, and we, you know, repair the we pair the presence of the other cat with good things. Um, we also try not to um, force cats to compete for resources. So you really have to make sure that cats have free access to all the things they need. Um, often baby gates and screen doors are involved, so you're really trying to control their interactions at first. And so even if you go like the medication route, you still have to do the behavior modification. Like you can't just drug the cats into being happy together. You really have to do the work. And sometimes you have to train one cat to kind of have a little bit of, um, 
not, you know, it's not necessarily control, but you want to train them to do alternative behaviors in the presence of the other cat so they don't just follow their immediate urge to chase or be too forward. And so you're trying to teach them to be kind of calm around each other so that we have different tools to work with. But it's very challenging um, also because we don't have a good structure in place for training cat owners how to train animals. Mm -hmm. So when you adopt a dog, you know, you find a trainer, you can go to dog classes. You know, when I'm trying to explain clicker training to a cat owner, you know, I'm like, I'm like, okay, I really can't lose them. I have to show a lot of video and keep them yeah. engaged. And especially nowadays that I'm not doing home visits, I'm only training people via Zoom. It can be challenging to, to be a good educator over Zoom. And like, how can I get this message across when I can't watch them do it? I can't physically like, you know, show them things. So it's, um, it's, it's definitely a hard situation that we just don't have the resources for cat owners that we have for dog owners on an educational level, on a medical level, on a behavioral level. There's just so much, we just expect so much less out of cats. And we also um, accept a lot of poor welfare for cats. Like a lot of people just accept that their cat's going to live under the bed and that's the way it is and don't think they can do anything about it, which is- And, really and might not even recognize it as the problem that it is. Yes. Yeah. 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 You know, so. it becomes acceptable. So I think it's often hard, even for people who have owned cats many times throughout their lives, they still may not really know what it looks like from the cat's point of view. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, so much of it, I think, you know, people often need the, you know, just coaching and education on what is normal behavior and what's not and setting up the environment. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many people have, you know, one food dish for three cats or, you know, one litter box that's disgusting for three cats and um, don't, don't see like, okay, if your cat's in the litter box and it's covered and the other cat comes in, they're going to feel trapped. So, you know, just even being able to see things from the cat's vantage point or even drawing a map and seeing like, oh, all the cat stuff is in one corner of the house. That does not help my cat feel like they, you know, are part of the territory. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of education that's still needed. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think, I think there's a ton of work to do. So if you have an older cat, then your advice would be don't get the little kitten or and wait until your own cat is gone? Um, you know, there's so many things involved, like how much space do you have in your home? How much patience do you have? In general, if you have a senior cat, I'm not going to recommend adopting a single kitten. Mm. If you get two kittens, it could work because the kittens will keep each other busy and they may leave the older cat alone, but you may have to manage the situation at least part-time where you're giving the older cat a break. Um, you, you really, you know, I'm learning because my 16-year-old cat passed away earlier this year and I recently adopted three kittens. And man, it's been a long time since I've raised kittens. They're wild. <laughs> They're nuts. <laughs> Yeah, I'd completely forgotten. So, um, yeah. you know, it, they're a handful. Yeah. And you know, you're home all them. day long. Yeah. And I'm home all day. Oh my God. Yeah. I'm here all the time and they still are, and they have each other and they're still nuts. So, um, they're fun. It's really fun. But and how much video you get from, oh my God, so much video. Watching them grow up and yeah, but you know, it, it, so you have to recognize like you could be, you know, and I, when my cat, so we had two cats and then one of them passed away and then we had one geriatric cat and we decided not to get any more until she passed away. Um, yeah. I was just not going to, we fostered a couple and she wasn't into that. So we we're like, okay, she wants to be the only princess until she passes. 
And so you have to recognize like, is this for me? Or is this, you know, so many people think like, oh, she's bored, she's lonely, she's getting old, I need to spring, you know, put some spring into her step, I'll get her a kitten. And you know, that's just gonna make things stressful. So I have to tell you a story about two of my patients. I had um, a client who had um, two, two cats, brother and sister. So, you know, they grew up together. And uh, at age 16, oh. the brother became ill. I think it was kidney disease or something common anyway. And eventually um, had to be euthanized because of his poor quality of life. And of course, they were very concerned about the remaining cat, the sister, because they had lived together all their life. And so yeah. then you're right, that question comes up, you know, should I get another, could I get another cat? And so we had the discussion around the topic that well, it's not the, the void the brother left can't be filled by like any cat. So I said, why don't you just give her some time to adjust? So about a month later, they called me and they said, we want to give you an update um, on, on, on her. You know what? She is, she's blossomed. Her personality has come out. Apparently she was waiting 16 years for that guy to die. <laughs> it's so true. I mean, that happened to, to two of my cats too. Um, I thought they were best friends. And then when one of them passed away and it can be very hard when your cats don't have the same grieving experience you have. Yeah. Because you're very, I mean, most people are very devastated. And then yeah. when they see their cats fine, they're like, yeah. And she was out there, like she was ready to go partying, man. My house. Yeah. So it's, yeah, I think it's really important not to rush that decision. I mean, people sometimes like immediately turn around and try to fill the void and I get it. It's, I mean, it's really a terrible experience to lose uh, an older pet. Like they just take up such a huge part of your heart and go through so many experiences with you and you really have to, you know, say goodbye to this chunk of your life and it's really devastating. So I have to ask you um, a feeding behavior question because I know that's another area you're very interested in, food puzzles and whatnot. Before we go there, can I I make one comment because to finalize this topic. Ah. Um, So so what you're saying is it's probably better to leave your older cat have a happy life than introduce more stress Although it might be better for you because you have a, you know, when one cat dies, you have probably less grief because you still have the other cat. So yeah. it's better for it to say, okay, bite the bullet, take that stress of a of your cat dying, and then get a new cat and start all over. Then introducing a you know new cat while the old cat is still there. It really depends on your your risk tolerance, I'd say. Um, you know, safest way to test the waters would be to foster, which is a great service for shelters. And if it doesn't go well, your kitty's stressed out, you just, you know, start, you just say, okay, this kitty's going back to the shelter. So that's always an option. Um, and it, it can, you can really, you know, serve your community, help more cats that way. So that's, you know, that's, that's an alternative. Um, I don't want to say you can never adopt. I mean, I've definitely known plenty of adult cats that do great with other cats um, and don't need super long introductions. But we do know, you know, the easiest thing is to introduce them young or adopt litter mates. And so that's a, a great way to have lots of cats is just get a whole litter. Get a litter. Right. A litter. Okay, Dr. Susan, all yeah. yours. So I'm just dying to ask you about um, something that you've recently published on, and that is contra freeloading. So you have to explain to us what that is and what did you discover? Okay, yeah. So contra freeloading is a is a psychological term for the preference um, to work for food rather than eat food that's freely available, like the same food. And this is observed in lots of laboratory animals like pigeons and rats. They have they give them the choice to either like push a lever for a food pellet or just have a bowl of food. And 
most of these animals will actually prefer to work for food, um, you know, basically show an operant response to get um, reward. It's probably partly due to control over the environment, right? You're making something happen that's predictable um, versus the freely available food. But, it, you know, it is, it is a little, um, maybe seems counterintuitive. So there's only been one, so this behavior has been studied in lots of species, grizzly bears, pigs, chickens, pigeons, rats, et cetera. And there's one study from 1971 of six cats that were in a laboratory and the paper's called feline indolence. Um, indolence. <laughs> yes. Uh -huh. um, the cats did not want to work for food was basically the moral of the story. Um, it was a study of six cats and they were food deprived. So there was, you know, there were some issues with the study and I had a, a student at UC Davis who was looking for a senior project. So we decided that he would um, collect data on contra-free loading in house cats. So cats living in homes rather than in a laboratory. Um, we haven't published the results yet. So it's not published. Um, it got some press recently because we did a, um, a, a PowerPoint, we did a, a, a talk at Animal Behavior Society conference. So it got a little press from that. Um, the results were pretty robust. So I feel fairly confident in, in saying like they were consistent across cats, but um, we gave, we had cat owners give their cats a choice between a food puzzle, yeah. um, which was uh, the Trixie tunnel feeder and a tray that was the exact same size and shape as the puzzle feeder. And so they did 10 sessions with their cats where they presented them with the same amount of food in the puzzle, same amount of food in the tray. Um, we'd already trained the cats to use the food puzzle. So in order to participate, they had to actually demonstrate that they knew how to get food out of the puzzle and were willing to do so. So we started with 20 cats and three cats refused to use the food puzzle. So um, those cats got kicked out of the study. So then we had 17 cats. And overwhelmingly the cats um, ate more food and spent more time interacting with the freely available food than using the food puzzle. So they ate about 80% of the food that they were offered from the puzzle, I'm mean, sorry, from the tray and only 30% of the food offered from the puzzle. So that was across all 17 cats. And they always, almost always went to the, uh, to the tray first and they always ate from the, the tray first. So they, they were more interested in the freely available food, which goes against what, you know, most other species do. So yeah. this actually supports the study from 1971 that, you know, yeah. suggested that cats were lazy and didn't want to work for their food. Indolent. And 50 years later, uh, we found the same thing in house cats um, that, and we also put activity trackers on them and we did not find any relationship between their activity level and their willingness to work for food. We thought maybe that working for food was a way to explore the environment. It was kind of reflecting of like activity and curiosity, but nope that was not related either. So, you know, as someone who's been a strong proponent of food puzzles for many years now as a form of enrichment for cats, um, you know, then the cats go and like tear my heart out of my chest. And um, <laughs> how old were these cats? I'm curious if age would have an effect. Yeah, so they were between one and 10 years of age. Yeah. So, um, and they all had to be healthy. They were all single cats. So there were no other cats in the household. So we try to control some things, you know, when you're working with, um, you know, part of my just personal interest in research was to not work with laboratory animals. Um, and so I wanted to work with fostered animals and cats in homes, but you know, that means you can't control every little thing in the environment. So that, you know, there are some, some things like the cats were not all eating the same type of food. They were all eating dry food, but they were eating whatever dry food they normally ate. So, you know, we didn't control for like calories or we just had the owners kind of split up their regular portions of food for each day into, you know, 
three to four sessions per day to test them. And we videotaped all the sessions. So we have lots of cute footage of cats, um, basically like making every possible effort to walk around the food puzzle to get to the tray of freely available food. Um, but what it tells me is it's not that food puzzles should not be used or that there's anything wrong with making cats work for food, just like there's plenty of days that I would prefer to sit on the couch than go for a run, which I'm, you know, trying to, I'm training for a 5k right now. So I'm, you know, I'm trying to get off my butt and run. Um, so there's, there's benefits to working for food. There's lots of research supporting that, you know, foraging puzzles encourage natural behaviors and that, you know, we know that cats work for their food naturally. So this is not like a strange concept to them. Um, it could be that the particular puzzle we used did not yeah. maybe um, tap into their predatory nature. Um, it's just not, maybe not set up to, um, to do that like maybe the um, Doc and Phoebe's uh, hunter feeder system is. That might be a better way to test that, um, whether or not it's really kind of tapping into that um, predatory behavior. One thing we did find was that the cats who did eat from the puzzle, generally ate more food from the tray as well. So the hungrier cats mm. were the ones that were more likely to work for their food. Mm. So it could be um, either the cats who did not contra freeload, maybe they're being overfed or they're not as, you know, just not that into food. I mean, I always find it weird that cats are not into food. They have to eat to survive, but of course some are not as into food or the, as others. So I think that might be part of it. Um, there was no influence of previous puzzle experience. So we, we tracked that as well because we thought that would be um, a factor. But interestingly, the cats who contra freeloaded um, were all males. So there were, I think, four or five cats who did use the puzzles and ate pretty much most of the food in the puzzle in addition to the food on the tray. And they were males, which I was surprising. Yeah. yeah. It does give you a bit of insight, though, and it, and it kind of fits with something that I've learned we use food puzzles a lot in, or we recommend food puzzles a lot in our practice as part of an obesity and weight management program. Mm -hmm. um, and we've learned to, as part of our education for owners, that once the cat has learned how to get food out of the puzzle, you have to start withdrawing the, the free food. Yes. Right? Because um, just as, you know, just as your study found, um, they will make a choice. Yep. And, and I think uh, the other thing, is that it should be a choice at first, right? Yes, you want int to always introduce change as a choice. And I think right. sometimes people just go gung-ho and like, I'm gonna put everything in the puzzle and the cat's like, whoa, what did you do? So, yeah. Yeah, so, so it really does fit with, with sort of my clinical experience. At some point you have to start withdrawing the free food or it's not gonna work. <laughs> oh, I, I have a question. I wonder if there is a, a learning effect here. So if you would teach cats from kittens on, because you're a kitten yeah. expert, you teach them, to get the food because you know in, in in i can see in nature they don't get food ready in a little plate they have to go for it so yeah. if they are trained early on as a kitten to use the puzzle yeah. do you think the success of those puzzles will be bigger than just yeah. from the street that are used to oh, have a bowl so why why in heaven's name should i use a puzzle yeah, I mean, I think when it comes to cognition, um, use it or lose it. And I think the earlier you introduce it, the probably it's just going to be like, okay, cool, what's next? Um, I think cats, as they get older, are a little more resistant to change, just like we are. So you have to introduce things like this much more slowly. But that said, I've definitely, you know, had clients introduce food puzzles to, you know, senior cats. Sure. And they did great. So um, you just have to really 
monitor. You have to make it easy at first. It's kind of like scaffolded learning. You have to support them as they transition. And, um, you know, it would be great to do more of a long-term study and see if, you know, over time they actually did start gravitating more towards the puzzle. I know with, you know, my cat who passed away earlier this year, she would sometimes get out of bed and go to the food puzzle and just get one piece of kibble and then she'd go back to bed, you know, so, and there was other food available. So she really just wanted to, that one little piece and she yeah. enjoyed working for it. So I, I think it's great to start them when they're young though. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that that's a, that's a recommendation I'd like to see more widely adopted. Yeah. To, to introduce that experience of food puzzles when, when cats are younger and, and to, you know, to keep it going. We, we tend to now introduce it as an intervention when things are going wrong. Yes. And I, I'd really like to see it be used more widely as this is, you know, good um, and may promote uh, some, uh, uh, may, may fit more environmental needs. Yeah, and I think getting getting that information out to people is is really important. You know, uh, Tony and Melissa and I did a survey of pet owners about their attitudes about using food puzzles, and a lot of people felt like they were mean, yeah, or they didn't see the benefit, and yeah. um, you know, so that kind of broke my heart. You know, that it was it was seen as a as a negative thing, and instead of as a potential, you know, not only just giving your cat a job. You know, I think so many especially with people working from home, I think cats are getting increasingly dependent on the attention they're getting from people. And not that we don't want them to enjoy our attention, but they need to have a little bit of kind of their own thing going on. You know, it's yeah. like, oh, you know, you're working, I'm going to go over here and, and work on my thing, which is my food puzzle. Um, so there's just so many potential benefits of using them that I I just hate that, yeah, people see it as, as a bad thing. Because yeah. he, he has to work for his food, it's cruel. But it's also this, as, a, as we were saying, the circumstances under which we, we do introduce them, they're always under circumstances where we're trying to provide an intervention. And, you know, when we introduce them to young cats, people, I think, are, have a more positive um, feeling about them because the young cats are inquisitive, will explore them, they seem to enjoy them. So that's yeah. another, I think, benefit of introducing them young. Yeah, we we definitely need more kitten kindergarten <laughs> education for people so that they can absolutely get, get things started right. For Yola, have you ever owned a cat? Yola's allergic, so I am super allergic to cats. So uh, no, I, as a matter of fact, I had many friends that had uh, a cat. Yeah. Um, I had a partner one time that had a cat yeah. and uh, loved that cat, but I am very very allergic. So yeah, that's a problem. And it's that much allergic that it's not pleasant. Um, otherwise, you can say, it, and I'm also really allergic for dogs, by the way, but my parents always had dogs. So I think I got kind of resistant or, you know, <laughs> desensitized. So I probably need to go through a very rigorous desensitization before I can have a cat, sadly. You need to adopt a litter of cats so that you can just be surrounded by them and, and <laughs> yeah. become completely, get over yes. it. So <laughs> what I would suggest in that case is you give me the litter and then check on me every two hours <laughs> I'm still alive. We'll just give you an EpiPen and you'll be fine. <laughs> So, oh, this has been great. I think we're already done with the, the second part. It, it's going so fast. This has been really cool. Um, Susan, do you want to finalize our wonderful session? Oh, I get to do it again? Uh-huh. 
Well, we're really uh, grateful that Dr. Michael Delgado has joined us for this episode and uh, the previous episode. So make sure that you go to our website, which is perpodcast.net. You'll see all of our episodes, all of our great guests. You can listen directly from our website. And of course, you can find us in any podcast app like um, the Apple Podcast app or iTunes or, or Spotify. And on social media, we are at perpodcast. So please check us out. Um, please uh, tell other people about us. And uh, if you feel inclined, please leave us a good review because that helps other people find us and helps other people um, hear these great podcasts that we've had with so many um, experts um, like Dr. Delgado, who are so giving of their time and expertise. So thank you again so much. I can't believe how fast the time went. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah, this was great. This was great. And we didn't ask Dr. Delgado if she has listened to the podcast. Oh. I have. Yeah. Yeah. Good answer. Yeah. No, um, I recently listened um, about mirtazapine kidney disease. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, with Jessica Quimby. So Dr. Quimby. Yes. Yeah. That um, was awesome. Yeah. We may have to have you back another time. You know, we don't yes. invite a lot of people back. It's a select group. <laughs> Dr. Horowitz, um, also a behavior person, is one of them. But I'm thinking, you know, we might need another episode with you. I'd love Dr. to come Horowitz. back. I had so much fun. Dr. Horowitz just came out with a book, Decoding the Cat. That's right. Yes. I have that book. Yeah. That, so yeah. that, that, that's an awesome um, example. So um, if people are interested in get some more information about your work, where should they go? Yeah, um, they can go to um, whatyourcatwants.com, which is uh, my blog. And from there, they can find my personal website. Um, I'm also at felineminds.com, which is my consulting business. So yeah, I'm, I'm on Twitter. Media. Sorry? And social media? Yep, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Um, yeah, Twitter is uh, Michael underscore Maria, which is my middle name. And then I'm michael.delgado on Instagram. Okay, and in our show notes, um, we'll put links to your websites and uh, to, uh, to some of the things that uh, we talked about as well. So we'll, we'll try to put a little collection of links there for listeners. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Dr. Susan Little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat-only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks, The Cat clinical medicine and management, and August consultations in feline internal medicine. Along with three cats, she also admits to owning two dogs, and you can follow her on social media with the handle at CatPetSusan. Dr. Yurl Kirpenstein is a diplomate of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently at Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at G-V-E-T-S-X. This episode is made possible by the generous sponsorship of the Take the Pledge Against Struvites in Pets Facebook page. Did you know there are three easy steps to treat bladder stones in cats with lower urinary tract signs? Step one is to take a radiograph and if there is a stone present in the bladder, step two is to use the Minnesota Urolith app for iPhone and Android to determine the most likely type of stone. 
Step three is to treat the cat for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options. Join veterinarians worldwide to take the pledge not to remove screwbite stones by surgery anymore. The opinions of this podcast are those by Dr. Susan Little and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. Veterinary medicine is a complex profession, and often there are multiple diagnostic and therapeutic options for different disease processes. If you're a pet owner with questions, please go to your local veterinarian. If you're a veterinary professional, ask your questions on our Instagram page at per podcast.